0: The Tom Woods Show, episode 1133. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, in 2018, more people than ever are going to be starting up a side hustle online. I know how to do this, and I'll show you step-by-step step exactly what I do in my free ebook, Five Paths to an Online Income. Grab it over at pathstoincome.com. Hey, everybody. Tom Woods here, talking once again to our friend Eric Peters, who brings us up to date periodically on what is going on in the world of cars and libertarianism. Eric is an expert on automobiles. I don't know what else to say. He just knows everything about Everything. And he is a hardcore Rothbardian libertarian, and you put that together, and that is a heck of a combination. And I can't tell you how many people have said, I am not a car enthusiast, so I didn't think I would like the Eric Peters episodes, and they turn out to be absolutely outstanding because it's just fascinating to listen to Eric, and he's such a good guy, and I'm just so happy to have him on for yet another update from the world of cars. Eric, welcome back.
1: Good to be back, Tom. Thanks for having me.
0: It's been quite a while, and glad to talk to you about a bunch of libertarian topics related to cars, but I'd like to start off with your impression of the 2018 model year, given that I know you test drive a lot of cars, and you've written a bunch of posts about a lot of cars, and um, I guess I've asked you in the few years that we've been doing this, I always ask things like, uh, are are there any surprises this year, anything that's a lot better or a lot worse, or a dark horse kind of car that just snuck up on you? Anything interesting you can share with us?
1: Yeah, there's a a general trend uh, toward very small and heavily turbocharged engines uh, that are being put into uh, large vehicles. For example, um, a week ago, Ford sent me the the Expedition to test drive, and that's a full-size SUV, three rows of seats, weighs about 6,000 pounds, and it comes with a V6, and no V8 is available. Uh, The V6 has a pair of turbos hanging on it to make up for the power that that is lost by getting rid of the V8. Uh, And the reason for this isn't market demand. It's not that the buyers are, are looking for this. It's because all of the manufacturers are trying to cope with the government's fuel economy standards, their mandates, which are much in the news right now. The government decrees how much gas a vehicle can burn if it doesn't meet that requirement, it gets stocked with fines, and these fines get passed on to the buyers, and it makes the given vehicle that uses more fuel than the government decrees to be allowable um, more difficult to purchase and thus to produce. So their way of coping with this is putting these small engines in there that that won't use a lot of gas unless you push down on the accelerator pedal and the turbo kicks in, and you get the power. The problem is that it's not a free lunch. You're talking about additional parts, additional components— and those add to the price of the vehicle, and potentially also down the road when those parts begin to wear out and fail. They can be very, very expensive to replace.
0: All right. Well, that is a – in fact, I'm looking right now at a New York Times headline from March 29th of 2018. EPA prepares to roll back rules requiring cars to be cleaner and more efficient. Now, I I realize Mm -hmm. we're going on a bit of a tangent. I do want to get back to the, the, the main question that I asked you, but You were telling me before we went on that there is a a confusion, perhaps deliberate, being spread in the media about the nature of these regulations.
1: Yeah, I I would not characterize it as confusion. I would characterize it as uh, deliberately misleading.
0: Yeah, I feel silly even for saying confusion. (laughs) Sorry about that. I, I accept your friendly amendment.
1: Well, the, the regulation at issue is something called the corporate average fuel efficiency, uh, requirement. And that dates back to 1975. And it arose out of the, uh, the oil, uh, embargoes that were imposed by the OPEC nations back at that time that resulted in gas lines and so on. So the government passed this law that imposed these, uh, mandatory minimum fuel economy averages that, uh, all manufacturers had to comply with. But the point for our discussion is that It's about fuel economy, period. It has nothing whatsoever to do with vehicle exhaust emissions. And for the media to characterize it as being an emissions issue is profoundly disingenuous, if not deliberately dishonest. And I think that they're doing it, frankly, uh, that way, because it's become very hard for them to sell the idea that the government has any business telling people how much gas their vehicle should use. After all, you're buying the vehicle, you're paying for the fuel And people are voting with their pocketbooks, and they're continuing to buy uh, big SUVs, pickup trucks, uh, minivans, larger vehicles generally because they meet the needs and wants of the buyers. And some people in certain quarters are very frustrated by this. So I think they've begun to characterize this as an issue of uh, air quality and pollution and public health in order to sort of shame people in feeling that, well, maybe we really need to do something to save the planet and save public health. And they're conflating these two things. And again, I think it's extraordinarily dishonest that they're doing that.
0: All right. Well, let's try and find some good news in the midst of all this. What's No doubt there's some cronyism involved, but still I think mm-hmm. by and large what you have is a private sector that is trying its best to, to produce what it can under the circumstances. Now, at the same time, right. it's not that the private sector is – It's full of angels either because they're also giving us these crazy cars that tell us what to do all the time. We'll get to that a little bit later. But still, they are doing their best, and I'm curious to know how well they're succeeding, particularly in this model year.
1: Well, they're succeeding phenomenally, and they have managed uh, to maintain and even increase the power and performance levels of vehicles. Uh, The average new car today uh, is significantly more powerful and more capable, Uh, accelerates more quickly and so on than uh, its counterpart of even 10 years ago. Um, and at the same time, uh, placate the government and these mandates that continue to issue out of Washington. In the case of that Ford Expedition that we were talking about a few moments ago, uh, you still have tremendous horsepower and torque. Uh, The expedition can pull, I think it's 9,300 pounds, so you don't lose any of the capability and the performance. They've managed to keep that up. The problem is that we're paying for this, and it's, in my opinion, I characterize it as a the hidden cost of the government. The government is doing this to us. We're paying for it. And uh, meanwhile, the government is posing as being our benefactor and giving us vehicles that save more gas, but they also cost us more. So my question is, on balance, who benefits from this?
0: Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. Well, l- l- let me ask you again. I-, I I realize I'm not quite on the libertarian topic yet, but mm-hmm. I know all- all my listeners have other interests too, and we have questions we want to ask about. For instance, how do you – balance the pros and cons when it comes to buying new versus buying used. Of course, w- there are advantages to buying used that would be things like the used car won't be hectoring you every single move you make. I get that, but but let's leave yeah. that aside. W- what are the benefits and costs to buying new, let's say?
1: Well, the chief historical advantage has been the peace of mind that comes with that new car warranty. And most of the manufacturers have upped their game on that count uh, to uh, ease the fears of buyers. For example, Volkswagen, which has gone through this gantlet of abuse over the TDI cheating scandal, has upped the standard warranty on its cars to, I think it's six or seven years and 60,000 miles. And that's the that's the full car coverage, not just the engine and transmission. Um, and that's an industry-wide trend. So that's probably the chief advantage is the peace of mind, not having to worry about anything breaking, or rather if it does break, somebody else is going to pay for it. That's probably the chief advantage to buying the new vehicle uh, leaving aside the fact that it's new and you're the first person to drive it and all of those intangible things. Now, on the flip side of it, <laughs> buying a used car, you'll generally save a lot of money um, because the depreciation rate on most new cars is astounding. Uh, typically, any car that you buy uh, two or three years from now, it's going to be worth about 30% less than what you paid for it. So looking at that from a different point of view, if you bought that car two or three years old, you get about a 30% discount off of its original sticker price.
0: Yeah, so there is – I know uh, an extremely wealthy person who buys only used cars mm-hmm. because he just feels like, I know I have enough money to do whatever I want, but that doesn't mean I want to do stupid things with my money, and therefore I'm going to buy a used car.
1: And that's why he's wealthy.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, I'm not doing too badly, but at the same time, I – sorry, I go for that mystique. I go for the new car mystique. They They, sure. saw, me, they saw me coming a mile away, Eric. I mean, I, I just, I go for it.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. There's nothing whatsoever, you know, morally dubious about buying a new car. You know, it's 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 a way to treat yourself, reward yourself for hard work. But as with anything, uh, not just cars, there are, there are pros and there are cons to it. I think right now, though, a, a new variable has been tossed into the equation, and you touched on it um, briefly a moment ago when we were just starting that discussion. And it has to do with uh, the stuff that they're putting into new cars. And it's not just... Uh, the nanny stuff, the pestering, the buttons and the buzzers and the lights. Uh, it's also this extremely elaborate technology that they're putting into vehicles, again, because of the need uh, to comply with the federal mandates. Um, both Ford and GM, just to cite two examples, uh, are putting 10-speed automatic transmissions in many of their vehicles. They jointly developed this transmission, and they're doing that because of the leverage advantage of that 10-speed that gives you an incremental improvement in overall fuel economy, but that is a very expensive transmission. And if it should fail on you post warranty, uh, you could potentially be looking at a bill of four or $5,000 for a transmission. And that can be a game ender for a vehicle, particularly if it happens when the thing is 10, 11 years old, and it's only worth $8,000 at that point.
0: Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Um, You know, I was going to say about a year and a half ago, I did a giveaway. I actually gave away a car. I gave away a car to some whoever was my most successful affiliate for my Liberty Classroom uh, program. And so it made people compete like crazy selling that thing, which was just what I wanted to happen. Mm-hmm. And then I gave away cash prizes for second through tenth place. And I partly did it because I thought I can. I'm doing it because I can. And there's a certain mystique about a guy who can give away a car. I, I mean, I just couldn't sure. resist it. So I did it. So I sure. thought I'm not going to give away – I could give away a Nissan Sentra, which was not. What is it? No, not the Sentra. What's the? What's the low? Is it the Sentra that's the lowest? The Versa. Car? No,
1: the Versa. The Versa is their sorry, car. that's what I meant.
0: Yeah. yeah, of course, of course, not the Sentra. Yeah, I meant the Versa. I could have given away the Versa, but I thought I think I want to go just one level up so that I'm not obviously giving away the worst car there is. I mean, you know what I mean when I say worst. So, <laughs> oh, I, so yeah, sure. So I did the, the Kia car. right, right, exactly. So I did the Kia Soul. Could have done the Kia Rio at that time, but Mm -hmm. I did the Kia Soul. And anyway, so anyway, it was fun. But it made me suddenly interested in lower-end cars because I was Mm -hmm. searching around for them. And that made Mm -hmm. me wonder, given that a low-end car today has amenities that no one could have dreamed of in a high-end car 20 years ago, how do you evaluate Mm -hmm. this decision? Do I buy a brand-new Nissan Versa or a two-year-old Toyota whatever would be somewhat in the same kind of ballpark? But a little bit better, but
1: used. Uh, well, our frame of reference really needs to change. You know, this idea of low-end cars, that's really not an editorially accurate uh, uh, term any longer, given that a car like the Versa had one of those a couple months ago, incidentally. Uh, comes with a touchscreen. It comes with air conditioning. It comes with power windows and locks. Uh, it comes with all of the amenities that used to characterize a at least a, a nicely equipped car, if not a luxury car. So in terms of amenities... Uh, there really is no such thing uh, as the cars you and I grew up with. When you know, you talked about a low-end car, you talked about something like a, a Chevy Chevette that had floor mats and maybe an AM radio and a speedometer and a fuel gauge. And that, that was pretty much all you got. Remember those cars? Oh, yeah. That does not exist anymore. So you're not suffering, you're not uh, enduring anything by buying an inexpensive car. The chief differentiator uh, today is power and performance. Uh, typically, as you move up the food chain, you get more engine uh, and more power. And you also have access to some other gadgets as well. But that's the chief differentiator. That and, of course, the status. You know, a lot of people are, are just paying extra money because they like the prestige that goes with the, the more expensive and higher brand car.
0: I don't know anybody like that, Eric. I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, well, I still haven't though managed to get you to name me some specific ones. So now you have to. You got to give me a give me a few uh, at at different price points that you think are worth consideration.
1: Well, uh, one of my personal favorites is the Toyota Corolla, and nominally that car is in the compact class and the entry level class. But if you look at the stats of the car, you'll find that it actually has more back seat room and a bigger trunk than many mid-sized uh, luxury cars that cost two and three times as much. Uh, it's a wonderfully roomy and comfortable car. It also is a very well-equipped car, very nicely equipped car. You can get it with a, a nice big touchscreen if you like the gadgets with all the latest apps, all the latest technology, climate control, leather, everything else. Uh, and even if you essentially prostrate yourself before the salesman and say, uh, I'll just pay whatever you tell me to, it's hard to pay more than $20,000 for that thing. That's one of my personal picks of the litter. Um, another car that I like, and which unfortunately I gather uh, General Motors is about to cancel, uh, is the full-size Chevy Impala, um, which is essentially a less pricey version of the Cadillac XTS. And it's a nice, big uh, American car, kind of like they used to make them, except it's not rear wheel drive and it doesn't have a V8 engine, but uh, it's wonderfully posh. uh, It's an impressive looking car. It's a quiet, smooth car. And uh, in today's market, it's a relatively inexpensive car. I think you can start around $28,000. I'm just pulling that off the top of my head, but I think that's about right. And that gives you a car that's very comparable uh, in terms of its size, its presence, its comfort, to something like a BMW 5 Series or a Mercedes E Class.
0: Wow, that, these are interesting. I wouldn't have thought of either one. I think I rode around in a Toyota Corolla when I was five, six, seven years old. That that mm-hmm. thing has staying power.
1: Yeah, well, exactly. It's one of the it's one of the perennial bestsellers uh, in Toyota's entire inventory. And uh, this is interesting, and, and I think the listeners will probably agree with me. Uh, if you pay attention when you're out driving around, you will still see Toyota Corollas from the 90s uh, regularly uh, being driven daily. Um, and that's quite something. Uh, if you look at you know, most other cars from that period, especially the entry-level cars from that period, you almost never see them anymore. They're, they're long since rusted away or retired.
0: More with Eric Peters after a very brief word from our sponsor. Folks, if you're looking to add Bitcoin to your retirement account, then check out BitTrust IRA. BitTrust IRA helps you seamlessly and securely add cryptocurrency to your portfolio. Their team handles the entire process to make it easy. Plus, download your free copy of their Cryptocurrency IRA Investor's Guide at bittrustira.com woods. That's bittrustir acom woods. Or give them a call right now to learn more at 855-642-8800. That's 855-642-8800. All right, let's talk uh, libertarian stuff here. Mm-hmm. I, was it Delaware where they're running a test on something called the mobile driver's license?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, essentially, what they want to do uh, is is electronicize the driver's license and turn it into an app that's on your cell phone. And this would enable a cop, for example, to simply uh, obtain your, your uh, information without even having to pull you over. It would be something that could be accessed remotely uh, by the cop from uh, his vehicle. As a for instance... Um, and it would also incorporate all of the data that's being included into this—the real ID and the biometric stuff—the uh, um, data about your, your, you know, your—not not just your driving record, but literally everything. They put barcodes on a lot of the, the current driver's license, and in some states, you're required to give them um, a fingerprint or even an iris scan, and all of that data too is incorporated into these uh, into these smart cell phone uh, mobile IDs.
0: So. What's the problem with this? If you're not doing anything wrong, Eric Peters, why would you be afraid of being monitored?
1: (laughs) Well, that's just it. That's just exactly it. You know, I read once, and I can't recall uh, who is the author of this quip, but I I find myself in agreement with it, and it is that one of the hallmarks of a civilized society is privacy, Um, and that if your privacy can be violated at will by the government, then you no longer live in a civilized society, and that's a sentiment that I I very, very uh, profoundly agree with.
0: Before we move on to looking at something that's in the private sector itself that's kind of annoying, let's talk about this a bit further because it, mm-hmm. as with things like Facebook and Twitter, it's not just state actors that have access to data about your behavior and your whereabouts and things like this. It's also the you know so-called private sector in this case, and I wonder if there's a similar thing going on with the cars.
1: Sure, of course there is. Uh, From a purely technological point of view, uh, it's exactly like the thing with Facebook. Uh, If the government can access at whim this data uh, remotely through technical means, um, then certainly uh, private actors who have the desire to do it and um, obtain the means to do it can do the same. So it exposes all of your data, uh, and there's a lot of data now on these smart driver's licenses, these real IDs, um to these people and there you go you know all that stuff is out there in the commons and it's a it's a it's a a very significant security issue as well as a privacy issue
0: all right so let's talk about you've got a post over at uh, epautos.com about cars that parent us we've Mm -hmm. been over this before but they are coming up with new and irritating ways all the time for the car to second guess you and the car's judgment is not always better than yours it turns out
1: no, it's very peremptory. Um, one of the unintended consequences of government safety standards, I'll just get into this one particular example, um, has been that cars now are almost tank-like, and they have very thick A-pillars, B-pillars, C-pillars, trunks that are high up in the air. It makes it very difficult to see outside of the car. Visibility in the typical new car is atrocious compared to what it was, say, 10 or 20 years ago. And so as a result of that, they've put these backup cameras in the cars. And now you're supposed to use the backup camera to back up. Well, you know, I'm old enough to have learned to drive before there were cameras. And sometimes when I'm trying to park my car curbside, I like to crack the door open to look, see where I am in relation to the curb, because the eye, the human eye, assuming you have good vision, has depth perception, um, and you have a sense of spatial relationships that you don't get with these cameras. Well, I had a BMW, I think it was a 6 Series uh, a couple of months ago. And if you try to do that, the car will countermand you and it will take the transmission out of gear. It will not let you back the car up with the door open if you're cracking the door to look behind you and try to back up that way
0: yeah, and so it's that, but I mean at first, it used to be just be that it would ding a few times if you didn't have your seatbelt on mm-hmm. that that was the camel's nose in the tent, yep, it was the old seatbelt dinging, and then that dingy would go away and you'd just keep driving Yep. but na- but just on that seatbelt thing. I mean, they just will not stop. They're just going to torture you <laughs> that whole
1: ride. <laughs> well, it's even worse than that. Uh, you know, I often take my laptop, which is a MacBook Air. So, you know, if you're familiar oh, with Mac, Air. are the very small in life. The,
0: the car thinks it's a passenger.
1: Exactly. So yeah. this, this, this computer, which can't weigh, I don't think it weighs three or four pounds, if that. Uh, I put that on the seat, and the this, this, the button, the buzzer starts to go off. The light starts to flash, uh, driving me crazy. And then I have to buckle in my computer, or you know, contend with this this buzzer that's this, that's going off in my ear constantly. So
0: that's definitely a biggie. That's the one that we've most been tortured by. But there are a whole bunch of things now about mm-hmm. you know lane changes and going in reverse and things of this nature, and. I don't know. I mean, maybe these things make you safer. I don't, I don't know. I, that's not really the I, I main question to me. I, yeah, yeah, so, so I'm, I'm wondering if, by... I, I wonder if they are counterproductive in some cases.
1: I, I think that they are, and I'll, I'll give you two reasons why. First, they're they they're distracting. Uh, it's difficult to maintain your focus on the road when buzzers are going off. Uh, your seat is vibrating. Um, GM does that. Uh, they have a lane departure system where the seat begins to vibrate if you're moving out of your lane. Or um, in many new cars, they have a lane keep assist uh, if you're, if you, uh, for example, are trying to make a lane change and you cross over a, a double yellow line, uh, the steering wheel will actually fight back at you and try to countermand your steering and turn in the other direction to keep you in the lane. I find these things to be very distracting. Um, and on the other hand, the second objection that I make of them toward them is that they encourage passive driving. Um, all of these technologies, uh, ostensibly marketed as safety features Uh, encourage the driver to think about other things, to fiddle with the radio, to touch the screen, uh, to text, to call, um, instead of being focused on the task at hand, which is to drive the car.
0: Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. You've got a post that I think we absolutely have to talk about. It's called, The Jeep We Can Buy But Can't Drive, Mm -hmm. partly because it's interesting in and of itself that this particular vehicle exists You're allowed to buy it, but you're not allowed to drive it and Mm -hmm. find out why. But also because this is, in a way, it helps us get a rough estimate, as you say in the article, of what the cost is of the regulatory apparatus. Because the cost Mm -hmm. would be the ability to buy a much less expensive vehicle like this. And now we know exactly how much less expensive it would be. So Mm -hmm. I'd like to hear about that.
1: Well, there are a number of vehicles that are available in other countries that are illegal Ah, uh, to sell in this country for chiefly two reasons: they don't meet either federal emission standards or they don't meet DOT safety standards. So, if you bring them into the country, uh, they actually <laughs> there was a case about a year ago where some Land Rovers were brought in that weren't um, certified to be in the United States, and they actually sent armed SWAT teams to these people's homes to confiscate the vehicles. Um, so, there's that. Uh, then you have vehicles like this. It's it's called the Mahindra Roxor, and essentially it's a, a reproduction of a 70s-era Jeep CJ. Uh, Mahindra is an Indian company, and they licensed the old Willys Jeep for many years, and so they've decided to reproduce this. But the way they get around uh, the EPA and the DOT is to market this as an off-road-only vehicle. So you can buy it. It's legal to buy it, but you can't register it and put license plates on it and drive it on public roads. So essentially, it's for people who live out in the country and and have pasture land and fields and so on to drive out in the fields.
0: So give me some numbers associated with this vehicle.
1: Okay, they are selling this for about $15,000. Now, to put it into context, the least expensive uh, EPA DOT uh, uh, certified analog that you can buy and drive on public roads is the current Jeep Wrangler. And its base price is a bit over $27,000. So the disparity is about $12,000 between the two.
0: So $12,000 then mm-hmm. represents what? Let's just be blunt about it. What does that represent?
1: Well, it represents two things. It rep- represents the cost uh, of complying with the EPA and the DOT. And in my article, I, I separate out those two. I think I'm a libertarian, um, so you know where I stand on a lot of these issues. I I, I think that you can make a legitimate argument that uh, you know that you don't have a right to spew pollution out in the Commons. I, I accept that there has to be some some way to moderate the emissions. You can make a legitimate case for that in my opinion. but the safety stuff is another matter. I don't think it's the government's business. frankly, it's nobody else's business whether my car or your car has airbags as a for instance. If you would like to have airbags in your car, you certainly should be free to buy them. but I don't think that they should be forced on people. That's where the big cost comes in. The reason you don't see vehicles like this on the public roads anymore, and this is a very simple vehicle, has no airbags, uh, the doors can be physically removed, the window can be dropped, uh, it would never pass any of the current government crash test standards. And because of that, it's inexpensive. It's extraordinarily expensive to build a car uh, to meet the DOT safety standards. Um, almost every new car has a minimum of at least six airbags, and some, believe it or not, have as many as 12 to 15 airbags.
0: 12 to 15
1: airbags? Yep, yep. The smart car has that many. Remember the little smart car?
0: Yeah, yeah. does yeah. is, is that not exist anymore?
1: Uh, they're still making it. I'm not sure whether they're going to continue to make it next year, but because it's so small, the only way it can be made safe uh, is to put that many airbags in the thing.
0: Oh, gosh.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So if you took that out of the equation... If you took that out of the equation, you know those are expensive, and it's not just the airbags. They, these things are physically built into the structure of the vehicle. It's not as though they're grafted on. They have to design the whole car around this, including the dashboard, the steering wheel, the doors, the A-pillars, and all of that stuff. Very, very expensive. Um, and, of course, the back end of the car and the front end of the car have to be able to take a certain hit and crumple a certain way and all of this. So it's very, very expensive for them to, to do all of that. And, incidentally, it also makes the vehicle that much more heavy- which means it uses more gas, ironically. So you've got conflicting fatwas as I call them. You know, the, the safety thought was end up conflicting with the mileage thought was. So we have heavy cars that wind up using more gas and cost us a fortune, too.
0: Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Well, I, I want to make sure everybody remembers that uh, – there is nobody like Eric Peters out there that I know of who's dedicated to cars, who's also a hardcore libertarian, who will give you great car analysis, great libertarian analysis, and a lot of the time, both at the same time. Now, even though I like I like my car and I like driving as much as the next guy, I wouldn't describe myself as a car enthusiast, but I know – I recognize the importance of what – you're doing. And that's why you are one of a handful of people I support every month. I I send some dough your way every month because I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. You're the only person doing it. And sometimes the car world is not, let's say, overwhelmed with libertarian perspectives. So I'm glad you're out there. Basically, you, Scott Horton, antiwar.com, 10th Amendment Center, a handful of places like that that are on shoestring budgets. I feel like, you know, if I donate to, you know, some crazy cause that has a billion dollar budget my donation doesn't do anything but but I really am helping to keep the lights on in a lot of these cases and I hope the folks listening to this thank, episode Thank you I thank you for that. Um, it's absolutely my pleasure. I hope you guys will take the same lesson here. Not only visit Eric at epautos.com, sign up for that ebook because it's a it's a book that'll help you make the decision about uh, buying a car, but also you know s- support him, send him a little bit of dough. So that we can keep these voices alive and we can prove that we don't just, we're not just blowing smoke when we say, well, in a free society, people would voluntarily donate to causes like that. Oh yeah? Well, then let's do it. And, and a great way to start is at epautos.com. Uh, help out Eric and also learn a lot. You're, once you go there, you'll never want to leave. That's the only drawback. So Eric, thanks so much for your time.
1: Sure, and incidentally, I also am happy to give advice to people. We have a button on uh, on the page that people can click. It says it's uh, Ask Eric, and if they have a carbine question or anything related to maintenance, repair, or anything like that, uh, it's free. Uh, you know, they can just click on it, and I'm happy to uh, to give any advice that I can.
0: Wow, that's even but now now come on, people. <laughs> that's great. I'm not I'm not offering that, by the way. You are on your own with with, with stuff. <laughs> you gotta get in my private Facebook group if you wanna ask me something. That's really tremendous. So epautos.com is the website. Um, we'll link to a few of the items that we discussed today on the show notes page, which for today is tomwoods.com slash eleven hundred thirty three. Eric, great to talk to you.
1: Thank you, Tom. I always enjoy it.
0: All right, folks, if you have not yet signed up to be on my mailing list, you've got to do that. You think, I don't want any email. Woods, why are you doing this to me? Folks, my emails are legendary. You say, Woods, what do you have, some kind of a big head? Well, on this, yes, I do. On everything else, I'm Mr. Humility. But on this, I actually do write emails that people want to open. I know that because I got the statistics right in front of me. I know people open them and read them. They say it's from Woods. I know it's going to be something interesting, entertaining. It's going to be something that'll brighten my day every day. I'm going to enjoy reading it. Half the time, it's me smashing some bad guy, or I'm sending you some great resource, or whatever. But whatever it winds up being, it's always a 10 megaton bomb in your inbox. So hop on that list. You can get one of my free ebooks while you do it. You can get my ebook about guns at wrongaboutguns.com. Uh, you can get any of my free ebooks and hop onto my Tom Woods letter list over at tomsfreebooks.com. I guess i got to put that guns one over there. I've been too lazy to do that. I'll get to that at some point. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.